Hello, and welcome to Jewish Divorce Talk, a show about divorce, separation, co-parenting, and other unique considerations that arise when couples divorce in the Jewish world. On each episode, I'm joined by experts and guests who discuss divorce and related issues from different angles and give their opinions and perspectives that often challenge the way people view divorce in the Jewish community, countering the stigma and driving for reform. I'm your host, Eliana Baer, New Jersey divorce lawyer and partner at Fox Rothschild, a national law firm with over a thousand attorneys across 29 offices, offering over 70 diverse services and specialties. In this episode, I'm joined by Nathan, host of the Let's Get Serious podcast, a platform for men to share their relationship struggles and parenting struggles, and also their triumphs while receiving insights from experts on various related topics. Nathan is an Orthodox Jewish father of three young children who developed an awareness of the challenges facing Orthodox Jewish men in today's age while he was going through his own difficult divorce. He noticed a lack of awareness and support in the community for men's issues, along with insufficient resources and infrastructure that could have aided him and his peers. Now Nathan has built a platform that has been so helpful to so many out there today. Nathan, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Hi, Eliana. Thanks so much for having me on. I am okay. This is like a crossover episode of your favorite TV show because, Nathan, I was just on your podcast, Let's Get Serious, and now you have the honor of <laughs> joining me on my podcast. So I'm really delighted to have you here, and everybody should listen to both podcasts, right? I would agree. I think both are good, and I'm really excited for the episode we did together to, to be released, and I think people will enjoy it. And it's nice that we get to be on each other's podcast where content is a little bit different and we each get our turn to choose specifically what we want to talk about because there's really so much. Absolutely. And we had a very spirited discussion on your podcast. Everybody should definitely listen to it. Let's get serious. And I think it arose as as I understand it, this podcast that you've created and this movement you've created almost as a passion project for you. So what prompted you to start this podcast and create this movement? Yeah, it is a passion project of mine. It's not my day job. What prompted me was going through a very difficult divorce and recognizing that there were things that were not only in the divorce, and the divorce itself was very difficult, but also just everything leading up to it that in my case was pretty avoidable. The people who I networked with, they also, in a big way, a lot of the hardships that we went through were things that were relatively avoidable if we would have had the right tools and the right perspective, I think. And I found that like a lot of people I know, myself included, and a lot of friends and people who are still married or in relationships, I should say long-term relationships, we're not necessarily well-equipped to deal with the challenges of life, especially in my community, which is the Orthodox Jewish community. And I recognize that the podcast medium was really growing. This is during the pandemic. And a lot of podcasts were out there for different topics in the Orthodox community. But there were a lot of women's podcasts. A lot of women came out with really great podcasts, but there were no men's podcasts like at all, virtually zero. There were men who were doing podcasts, but about different things, different great projects, interviewing people with inspirational stories. There were Torah podcasts with insights on the Torah and on spirituality, but nothing practical enough. So I decided to do something. And I started with interviewing men who have gone through divorce. That was really like the original idea. But I've since interviewed just other people in the space of relationships and just living life as an Orthodox Jewish man. Nathan, I want to circle back to something that I picked up on that you said that a lot of the issues that you encountered were completely avoidable. 
Are you talking about issues within the marriage or in the context of the divorce or both? And what were those issues that you perceive as avoidable now looking back on it? Yeah, absolutely. I'm talking about both. In the marriage, there are a lot of things that probably most Orthodox Jewish men going into marriage are not prepared for. And that's to say that like most of the people I know, myself included, are hard workers, are sincere, good people who don't want to hurt anybody and who love their kids and who have good families and all the great things. But we're just not really prepared for the kind of challenges that marriage bring. And in my case, for example, I just didn't necessarily know how to meet the needs of my partner. Like, I didn't understand what, if there were any problems at all. What could she possibly be unhappy with? I'm doing everything for her. I care about her. I'm providing for her. A lot of what some people would think of as totally basic, a lot of men, it's not just a Jewish men thing, but it's a lot of Orthodox Jewish men who don't necessarily have girlfriends or a lot of experience with dating before marriage. And a lot of us who get married very young, as I did, are not necessarily prepared for it. And once you're thrust into it, you're young and suddenly you have a kid and you need to get a job and you forget and you just lose track of how important that marriage relationship is. And then the second part is in the divorce itself becomes so acrimonious because of things that you just are not aware of. You're not aware of how the system works. And as an observant Jew, you have two marriages, essentially. You have a civil marriage and you have a religious marriage. And a lot of tension builds up very quickly when you don't have a clear path forward and you don't know exactly how it works and you're trying to protect yourself and you're trying to to balance your needs and you probably have family pushing you and she has family pushing her. And in so many cases I see it, myself included, it quickly becomes very acrimonious. There's a lot of animosity builds up. Someone, someone in the divorce industry, in the Orthodox Jewish divorce industry told me that there's no question to him that the divorce rate is lower in the Orthodox Jewish community, but the rate of nasty divorces is like exponentially higher than in the secular world. Where, I totally agree with you know, that. Yeah, you're a divorce lawyer, so yeah. you would have a good perspective on that. It's interesting. The way that you approach this issue is, to me, very striking because I deal with these types of divorces, obviously, all the time. You are not a victim, meaning you have stated that there are issues on both sides, there are lack of resources, you're doing something about it, and you don't place blame on one side over another, not saying, oh, it's unfair to men or it's unfair to women. It sounds to me like you really believe that there are issues inherent in the system and you're working to address those issues. So if you could go back, what type of advice would you give yourself? What type of resources would you direct yourself to? I know it's a loaded question, obviously, because I'm asking you to be introspective about possibly the most difficult time in your life, but your approach is so refreshing and so needed that it really does beg that question. Sure. Thanks very much. I appreciate you saying that. I guess I agree with you. I do feel like I try to really look at the whole picture and I'm certainly recognize what my mistakes, my faults, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I don't have anything to hide really. I'm not going to go too personal because I don't think it's appropriate, but 
I used to think divorces meant something really bad happened, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. In, in my case, there was no domestic violence or abuse or anything, except maybe in a very broad definition of abuse. I mean, like, you know, shouting or stonewalling or things that happen in the vast majority of marriages, essentially. But if they're not dealt with correctly, then they border on a very gray area of abuse or I guess that's a whole other topic. But in terms of like what could have been there and what would have helped, I really think in my case and a lot of cases I think of that we were both good people and a lot of marriages, especially in the Orthodox communities, just wear down over time because of a lack of understanding of what's actually happening in the relationship and understanding that the relationship itself is like a separate entity that has to be nurtured and regularly watered. And if you don't do that, then you, even if you think that things are good, if you're not maintaining it, it's not automatically good. Like we have to understand that it requires constant attention because it's not automatic. We just really take it for granted that, okay, I got married, it's there. There's a ring on it, and now I'm going to focus on my career. And when I retire, I'll get back to the marriage. And I'll have it there for me. But there's another person in the relationship, and that person has needs. And, and those needs are really important. And those needs are not just being fed and having the bills paid, which is such a crazy thing. It sounds crazy to not recognize that, but so many of us don't really see that day to day. We're so busy. The world is really stressful. Work is stressful. There's no easy jobs out there for most people. And by the end of the day, it's hard to consciously put an effort into the relationship and into the marriage and learn the skills. Like, I guess it's a separate thing. I'm getting a long answer. But the other thing is that, like, there are actual skills that you could learn. Now, this is hard for men to necessarily understand. But, like, the same way that you learn skills, like technical skills, learn how to operate a machine, or you're learning computer skills... There are skills that you can learn to express the love that you have for your partner, for your wife, that you have to learn. And it's not fake if you learn skills like that, because it's it feels fake. If I wouldn't do this on my own, why do I need to do something out of a book? That's not me. That's not authentic. But these actually are authentic. These are things that we need to do, because deep down, we do want to express it in this way. If we don't learn techniques and we learn skills, then we just... We won't end up doing it properly. And that's really what keeps the marriage together. And once you're out of it, you realize like how important it really was in your life and especially for your kids. And when it doesn't work out, it's unfortunately like really sad. It's really sad for you and for your family and for your kids. And uh, we have to learn to appreciate it more. Absolutely. And these issues that you described aren't going away. They're not they seem to still be very prevalent in the Orthodox world, meaning getting married young, being thrust into a job or a career at a very early age based on the need to support a family, the stresses of everyday life, the stresses of perhaps paying tuition and making ends meet and keeping up with the Joneses. So in addition to the podcast, which is obviously very important and very helpful in getting the word out there and the way you do it is taking ownership of the situation and working on it. What other resources can we provide to these couples to avoid an inevitable messy divorce situation that could have been this, quote, avoidable situation had the right tools been taught from the beginning? What's out there in terms of helping these young people navigate through marriage, through turbulence, 
and perhaps even an eventual parting of ways because the union was not right to begin with. What is out there to help people? Yeah, that's a really good question. I do have an episode coming out with a marriage therapist where we talk about this a little more. But part of the sad thing is that there really aren't that many resources available to most couples. The resources that are available are very expensive. Any decent marriage counselor is expensive. Sometimes they'll be covered by insurance, depending on you know how they classify or if they give some kind of diagnosis that they could get insured. But in my case, like just up close, how really tragic it is that in my case, we didn't really go to any marriage therapist because it was too expensive. But the divorce has already cost well over six figures and probably even over 200000 at this point. That's an insane amount of money. And just a fraction of that could have easily been used to probably save our marriage, save our kids' lives, essentially. And I see that in so many cases now where it's like the amount of money spent and 200000 is actually relatively cheap. I know of cases active right now where it's over a million already. I mean, if you look overall at the amount of like money that's flowing out of the community, we have so many incredibly important causes. There's schools, there's food pantries, and then there's like high lifeline and causes like that where we have so many important needs for money. And there's probably millions and millions of dollars spent every year within our community. I don't think there's any exact figures, but just the cases I know I could extrapolate and say there's millions of dollars being spent on like ridiculously frivolous court cases. And I see appearances in court where it's a religious couple. They're arguing to the judge over who should have the child for Pesach, for Passover. And there's four lawyers in the room and the session easily costs three or $4,000. And it's mind-boggling. And everybody knows it's mind-boggling, but it just still goes on because nobody can break out of it. Once you're in that system, you can't break out of it. The amount of money that's spent on the divorce is just is absolutely bonkers. And just a fraction of that money could be spent on investing in the marriage and in the family. So unfortunately, there just are not really that many resources available to get a couple off of that train. There are a few efforts happening. There's something called the Yashar Initiative, which is a prenup for a couple where they designate a, a certain religious court to preside over the marriage. So that if the marriage runs into problems, then that is the religious court that handles everything. And then that religious court is basically empowered to basically guide the couple early on before they start disputing because just one thing that makes things acrimonious is that they the first thing that they fight over is which religious court do we go to and then that ends up really setting the path down to a big legal battle religious and civil so one of their aims is that they want to avoid that whole fight and the less you fight and the less outside people get involved early on the more of a chance there is to preserve the goodwill between the couple because it's like a nuclear war. The incentive structure in the existing system is so detrimental that basically at first sight of trouble, both sides go to a lawyer right away. Both sides go to a based in a religious court right away. And there's no turning back at that point because you have to protect your legal right, your religious rights, and you can't even talk to each other. In many cases, you can't even talk to your partner anymore because everything you say may be used against you in the court of law. Can and will, so, yes. <laughs> if, that's the, if that's the Miranda. So it's a minefield. And it is sad that there's really nowhere to turn to. There are rabbis. You can go to a local rabbi and say, look, my wife and I are having this problem. But there has to be enough of a goodwill. You have to be in a good place to do that. If you're in a bad place going into a crisis, it's 
unfortunately, like I can't say that there's any real good resource. There's one more thing. I think that based on what I see in the Jewish community is that rabbis in general are very reluctant to get involved in these kind of situations. They won't say it outright, but they'll privately tell you that they just really can't involve themselves in these things because it's so incredibly time-consuming. You're talking about a commitment of many hours each week or each day. It's a live event that's unfolding. And there's a lot of politics behind it. If one family is influential or both families are influential in their own way, as a rabbi, you're dependent on the board and on your community fund. And it's just, you can't take a side. And even by getting involved, everybody's going to think you're on one side or another. And it's such a bad position to be in. So there's, it's very hard to even find a rabbi who will get involved once lawyers are involved. So the whole thing just spirals. And it's really sad. Yeah, and I kind of question whether it's even appropriate for rabbis to be involved over, let's say, mental health professionals or perhaps a rabbi with mental health counseling type experience or training only because, as you said, rabbis are beholden to whomever, the people in the community, people who are paying them, not necessarily in a nefarious way, just in a matter-of-fact way. They serve the community and they're beholden to that community. And whether or not somebody's involved in that community and to what extent is always a question that has to be in the back of their minds for obvious reasons. Again, not a criticism, but just the reality of the situation. So I really do question whether a basin or a rabbinical court or a rabbi would even be the appropriate forum for people who are in these situations. And I do note that obviously there's, you take classes before you get married, you take college classes or chassan classes, and it teaches you the rules of whatever you need to do, not necessarily the troubleshooting. And I wonder if people with mental health counseling would be more appropriate to be a long-term Sherpa almost to guide these people through some tough times, at least for the first few years, to be on call for them. Because once you're outsourcing decisions to third parties, to a rabbinical court, you can't decide which family to go to for Yontif. And usually that's a manifestation of a larger problem in the marriage. It's usually not just one thing. It's never just one thing. And for a rabbi to parse through where it originated, how to address it, would be almost an impossibility. Do you think something like that, like an entire system overhaul versus a just piecemeal solution of maybe signing a prenup and going to a basin or something like that? Do you think an overall solution would possibly be more appropriate in that type of situation? A hundred percent. I think that in an ideal world, I think every couple would be assigned or they would choose someone to help guide them and be like their mentor. There are like there are counselors who who do that for a living, but they're very expensive. Like as a community in the ideal and like prototypical Jewish world, there was a rabbi of every town and he was just the rabbi and he was an expert in everything related to everything. And he was a mental health professional and he was he was just the wise man, all the halakhot, all the Torah, and he was a mental health professional. Not as, you know, in the traditional sense, like he understood how people work and he understood psychology. Nowadays, it doesn't really work like that in most places. Most rabbis are, it's a profession, it's a job. And it's not just like a job, like in the shtetl, it was a job also, but it was a secure job and there was tenure. Now rabbis, are they job seek, they're employed, they have to, their contract becomes up for renewal. So it's a totally different, a different 
role nowadays and a good rabbi is supposed to be able to at least figure out who to send you to and i just think i don't really know that many couples who have a mentor or who have a guide for both of them there are definitely many but for the most part we don't get we don't get like real psychological training and real marriage training we have chassid classes classes for the groom and for the bride which just deal with the halachot of family purity like a, those kind of topics, but they don't really, they don't teach you skills. Like the, the real thing missing, like in, in the yeshiva process, most from men have gone through the yeshiva system, is that we really don't necessarily have the skills. The We know what we want and we want to do the right thing, but we just, there's something, there's some gap there where it's like, why don't you see that I'm, I'm doing what, I'm doing everything I can. Like, why is it, I don't understand why she doesn't get it, why she's upset that why we can't work things out why we can't agree like i think i'm communicating properly I've, this is how i talk to my friends like why is there a disconnect and over time like it really wears down on the fabric of the relationship and if we don't understand how relationships work then we don't necessarily see the issues and but in cases where there's like a quick divorce like those are much more system some couples get divorced within six months or a year those are like those are usually like severe disorders or there's something there's an addiction there's something wrong but a lot of the divorces that are going on now are marriages from between 10 and 20 years and there's nothing severe it's just a pattern of miscommunication and mistrust and just lack of satisfaction and they really don't have to be that way so it's there's so many think of the thousands and thousands of children who are affected by it and the thousands of people and couples who really Fundamentally, they got married, they loved each other, they could have made it work. So it's really sad. It's really heartbreaking. And you've almost dovetailed on the reason that there's no fault divorce these days. Because in the situations you're describing, people are critical of no fault divorce and saying it's too easy to get divorced. But in order to pinpoint a time and space where the marriage began to break down, is almost impossible because it's such a bilateral issue in terms of the man, the woman, the system, that it, it would require a forensic investigator to determine how the marriage died and why it died, at, which is almost impossible. But as far as issues facing from men, because that's largely what you're focused on, what do you think is the most serious issue for from men these days as they navigate married life and throughout, I guess, the life cycle of the marriage. What is the most, if you could pinpoint one most serious issue, and I just said, it's difficult to pinpoint an issue, but in terms of the issues that you're addressing, what do you view as the most critical in this day and age? I definitely want to get back to no-fault divorce and address that afterwards. But in terms of the most pressing issue, I really think that the real issue, it's, you're right, it is hard to pinpoint. There are so many different issues that that I know of. I really think that just to kind of, if I'm going to sum it all up, I would say that it has to do with, I don't know what the preceding word is, but something management. I guess I'll call it life management, is that we have so many responsibilities. I guess this could apply to women too. Women will probably say, hey, it's the same thing on for women. But we have too many responsibilities and we just don't know how to handle all of it. We have financial responsibilities and we have to go to show. We have to take care of all the religious obligations. And we have community obligations. A lot of good men I know are involved in Hatzalah or Haverim or they're on the school board. 
we have to be able to send our kids to good schools and camps. And there's just, when you compare it to the secular world, like the amount of, the amount on our heads at the age of 25 to my college friends who are, let's say, not Jewish at all, who, when they're 25, it's mind-boggling, like how we could even, in the modern day and age, a 25-year-old is not paying 10 grand in daycare and trying to make their, have a wife to take care of and, and make happy every day. They're going out with their friends. They're sleeping in. Like it's a totally different lifestyle. They're usually by 25, I would say they're probably working, making it some money, traveling, spending it. And we are entrenched in life. And if we don't invest in, in learning how to build and how to manage, how to save, we, by the time we're 30, like things are just like, we, we, we haven't really grown. Like we, we unfortunately stopped growing where I think for women, like the women I know are much more focused on growing throughout the marriage and they're investing in it and they're thinking about it a lot. Whereas as men, we're really just trying to try to get through it day by day. And that's, and the other thing is I would say like life management is the other thing that's missing. I think you asked me for only one, but I think it, it's part of it. So I think I'm allowed to make this in. Well. Granted. <laughs> thank you. It's your podcast. So thank you. I think that we also don't really have that kind of support network. This is something that's in the general world as well that I see is like that we've been conditioned to, to put aside friendships. Like we don't like male friendships. I've heard of that topic. I don't remember who there's a few gurus out there who talk about how over the years, male friendship got eroded. Whereas women like still have that, like women are close friends and they can talk about anything. They call each other every day. Whereas as a guy, it's weird to call your friend and be like, Hey, yeah, got into a fight with my wife last night. She wants this. I don't know. It's like, a, it's just, it's culturally like we lost that where it's totally, it's supposed to be there. We're supposed to have that. We're supposed to be able to have, uh, it's like highly recommended even in the Torah. Like it's, it's stories like that. Relationships like that are a big part of the Torah where we're supposed to be able to work on these things together and find people to work on it together. But most of us really, most of our relationships are relatively surface level. Even with close friends, they could be, they could be like not surface would go a little bit down, but, but we're not really taught to, to go deeper. And when you walk into Shul on an average Shabbos, everybody looks like happy and all your friends are, everyone just went on a vacation, someone bought a new car. Everybody seems like they're doing great. And it's, it's hard to see, it, it's just hard to put yourself out there as, as just a regular person going through your regular normal struggles while everybody seems to be doing great. And everybody's putting on a face, which is fine. But if you don't have that, that, that support, it's just life becomes very difficult to manage. Even when things are great, it becomes difficult to manage. So I would say that's like the biggest thing that we need to work on. The biggest issue is just how to manage life, how to feel good about it and how to feel in control and feel comfortable with our day-to-day -day life. That's an interesting take. And it's almost like a societal issue that everybody needs to do a better job of addressing. Because if men feel judged generally for doing that, and it becomes a men and women issue, right? If women are the ones doing the judging as are men, and there's a certain expectation there, that could really be detrimental to society in general. Sure. I thank you for saying that because it's such a large issue and one that really nobody addresses. But you did want to get back to the no-fault divorce issue, and I just threw it out there at you and then glossed right over it. So let's circle back to that before we conclude. And 
I'd like to get your thoughts on that because it's a hot take from a divorce lawyer. I guess it's not really for other divorce lawyers, but we deal with complicated relationships all the time. And it's always a he said, she said. He says the woman was too rigid. She says the man was too free-floating and couldn't really make decisions or whatever it is. And it becomes this dynamic that you can't really separate because everything's so intertwined and so together and amalgamated that it just becomes an impossible task to determine whose fault it was. So as somebody who's been through the process, somebody who's been through the divorce and thinks it could improve, what's your take on the no-fault divorce system and how it affects marriages? Yeah. I, I remember early on speaking to a divorce lawyer who explained it to me that just, just a quick rundown of the history and how it came about and in terms of how it used to be where you had to come to court and like you had to prove that the other person broke the marriage, broke the contract and how in some cases how ridiculous it got because even if there was clear fault like one partner cheated on the other then that partner would just respond well, i had to cheat on you because there was no relationship with us there was no intimacies and then the other one would say well, it was because of this and you would go into a rabbit hole so i totally think that no fault divorce is perfectly okay like it, it doesn't there's nothing wrong with it if somebody is miserable being married to someone else then there's no reason why they shouldn't have a mechanism to get out of it what are they supposed to do and and who wants to be married to someone who doesn't want to be married to them it just it just it's not going to be a happy situation and it shouldn't be like a drawn out court process where you have to prove a good reason to not want to be married but however big however is that while that's true there is a very big problem with the fact that you could just file for divorce at any time without a good reason and have a contested divorce that is where the issue lies, I think. And that's where there's so many bad divorces. That's why the divorce rate is so high in the secular world. And I think that's also why we have a lot of very bad Jewish divorces, because people do use the court system to try to get things. And then we all let me stay on this track for a second, is that when it comes to no-fault divorce, I think it makes sense to have a no-fault divorce. But the problem is that people file no-fault divorce and then treat it like it is a fault divorce. Like they are entitled to to child support payments, alimony payments, to taking custody of the children, where that really should be reserved only for a fault divorce, because it creates this really terrible incentive where, you know, for any reason, the spouse who prepares for the divorce, who plans it better, while the other spouse could be out working hard, the spouse that plans the divorce could really end up and very often ends up with quite a nice severance package. And it really creates a lot of mistrust in the marriage because if I'm married to someone, we have a contract that we're going to stay together through thick and thin and we're going to build a family together. But I know in the back of my mind that that person could just take everything from me at some point. How do I make those big sacrifices for that person when I know that could happen? And I just think it's really damaging. And then in my case, I won't get too personal, but in my case, like I made a big sacrifice. I moved to another state for my partner. And I never would have done that really if I knew about no-fault divorce and the conditions that were necessary to file for one because I ended up getting stuck in another state where I might have done it anyways because I was so committed to the marriage. But if I would have become aware of it and considering she had threatened for divorce a little bit before that, I probably would have said, I don't think I want to risk getting stuck in this other state for the rest of my life with my children. So 
maybe I won't do that. So there's a certain amount of commitment that you need in a marriage in order to keep it alive. Otherwise, like there really is no point when it comes down to it. When you have no fault divorce, I won't just say no fault. When you have no fault, no consequence divorce, what is the point? What is the marriage essentially? It's it's basically at that point, why even bother getting married? It's hard for me to understand. Just have a long term relationship as a boyfriend girlfriend, and you can leave at any time for any reason, and it's perfectly fine. Both sides understand that. It becomes complicated in those situations when you have children, though. And this is where I run into an impasse as a divorce lawyer. And it's interesting to note how it affects the people involved. Also, obviously, I have my clients to represent and we take certain positions. But as the laws become more difficult to relocate, I'll use your example of moving to another state. And it used to be, at least in New Jersey, that the view was what's good for the custodial parent is good for the children. But obviously, where does that leave the non-custodial parent? So that's a whole other topic. But now the standard is best interests in general for relocation. So it's like custody determination if you want to relocate, which makes it almost impossible because the prevailing theory is obviously it's best for the children to have both parents in their lives on a regular and consistent basis, which is the social science. And it makes sense because from our observation in life, it is best for the children to have both parents, but that kind of leaves one parent or another stuck where they, in some situations, were lured into by the other parent. And you're up a creek without a paddle at that point because you're relying on the sanctity of this marriage. And it turns out that it's not that way. And where does that leave the parent? So I definitely see both sides of it, especially on both sides of these types of cases. But thank you for sharing that experience because it's eye-opening, certainly, in terms of its practical effect on people. So I do thank you for sharing that. And I wish I could talk to you forever. And we had the same conversation when I was on your podcast. Like We have so much to learn from each other, and I wish we could talk forever. But I need to conclude at this point, and I really do thank you for coming on the podcast. Can you tell people where they can learn more about you? And maybe we'll do a follow-up episode because we definitely have a lot more to talk about. So where can people learn more about you in the interim? Thanks. Yeah, it's really nice to talk to you. It's really a a big conversation, and there's so many aspects to it. And I'll let people know that they can find me at lgspodcast.com. It's the Let's Get Serious podcast. I put the episodes up over there. Is it okay if I just conclude with like a short thought about the last thing you said in terms of how marriage is like the custodial parent and what's good for them? 100%. Thanks. I I think it's just like important for people to realize that divorce historically, especially when there was fault divorce, it really used to be that it's because something bad happened and one of the parents, usually the father in most cases, had really done something bad or he was an alcoholic or for some good reason, he was just unable to be there for the family and in his children's lives and he would go off and send some child support money back a few pennies every week or whatever. But nowadays, that's not really the case. Most divorces are just not because anybody's terribly bad and are not terrible parents. It's just that for whatever reason, it didn't work out and the couple stopped wanting to work on it. It's just important for people to realize that. So we have to stop thinking in terms of custodial parents. And not, I mean, that still is the law in a lot of states, but I think New Jersey's much more progressive though. Both parents are important and we have to figure out how we can just get divorced amicably 
and learn how to make good co-parenting the norm. And that's something that I hope to work on more and bring out in people on the platforms that I'm using. But yeah, thanks for sending your listeners to lgspodcast.com and subscribing. And I hope that people find it interesting, especially men. Absolutely. And thank you for that perspective. I think that's incredibly important. And you're right. Things are becoming more progressive. We're not there yet, but we're working on it. And it's definitely refreshing and important to hear your perspective on it, like boots on the ground in terms of how it practically affects people. So I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And I know you went through a difficult time, but it's amazing that you're emerging from the ashes of that situation and making it into something so productive. And it's great. And keep doing what you're doing because it's just amazing. So thank you very much. much. And it's been really great having you on. Wow. Thank you, Eliana. It's really nice talking to you. I hope we speak more. Absolutely. All right. Have a great day. You too. And of course, you can find out more about me at foxrothchild.com slash Eliana Bear, where you can also find my latest blogs. You can find me on LinkedIn at Eliana Bear and on Instagram at, at Eliana T. Bear ESQ, Esquire. If you've enjoyed this episode and you want to listen to more, please like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts.